Hello, welcome to another special edition of the Two Black Too Nerdy podcast. I am your host, Chris, and this is part two of the Black Vote podcast, where we discuss black partisanship and the 2020 presidential candidates. Enjoy. I'm glad you brought that up, both you and what Christina said, because those are going into um, my next um, question. So I'll go uh, since Chris, you're the last one to go, I'll go on that one. So um, in 2018, I believe, when, um, uh, or maybe it was 2017, when Doug Jones ran uh, for the Alabama special Senate election um, to take over, can't think of his name, but I just want to call him the Keebler Elf. Um, the, uh, Jeff Sessions. Yes, Jeff Sessions. Thank you. Um, when to take over his seat since he uh, worked, went to work for the Trump administration. Uh, one thing that propelled him to victory was the black women turnout. Um, it was purely because black women came out and came to support him in such numbers. It propelled him over the top. So you had a blue senator in a fiercely red state. Um, when it comes to uh, the Democratic Party not just simply taking the black vote for granted. Where do you want to see them actively um, campaign for change that will actually impact the black community versus pandering for in, for the black vote? Where is that line, and how do they not cross from actually being legitimate to pandering? Well, Chris, I think this is a very simple question. Occupy. I mean, what room do black people have to complain if you don't have a black person in the race? If we really have an agenda, we should have a person with our ideals and our interests. All black people don't have the same interests. But if collectively the majority of blacks in that area say this is our agenda, this is what we want to see, we have a candidate. You've occupied it. There is no question. I mean, other than that, you are voting uh, with some level of um, survival in mind where it's not necessarily your preference, but you're, you're pulling what you can. And I think the only way that you can affect somebody, whether they're just playing politics and taking that for granted, politics is a very, is a, it's, a, it's a long game. But at the end of the day, it is a game. And if you don't play it well, you're not gonna be in the game. So I don't think that black people have a lot of room to complain if we're not voting and if we don't have our own candidates, what we, what are we saying? I 100% agree with that. 100% agree with that. And I, and I think that's where it starts. Um, you know, my, my look phrase for this election has been, especially with the democratic primary this year, has been, I'd rather have some of what I want than all of what I don't. And I feel like that has been where collectively uh, people of color, we've been for generations. I'd rather have some of what I want instead of all of what I don't. And so we go with that some of what we want. Um, but getting out there and having folks uh, at the table uh, is important. But to your question, Chris, I don't think it will ever be. And I, th I don't think it will ever be a point where, right, let's say the Democratic Party, anybody um, uh, will, will, will go for that because simply people of color aren't at the table. Like you, you, you aren't at the table. So if people of color aren't at the table 
and we're waiting for somebody else to do it for us, then that's where we fall short. And I'm not beating up on, you know, Democratic uh, Party leadership too much here um, because uh, I, I have a heart. And I do know that some of them, you know, our, our white brothers and sisters who be in the fight, who be marching with us, they legit just don't know. Like they legit, they just have no idea. And so they're just out of the, the, from the scene of their pants is just trying to figure out because white people, when they have something that is going wrong in their society, they know how to change it. And this is one of the things that white people collectively have not been able to change. And so our white brothers and sisters are saying, well, we have to do something and we have to do this, uh, right? So they treat black problems like algebraic equations. If we put this in and take this out, then this is a result that we're going to get. And this is what we can come up with. Um, so I think it's, it's just hard for them sitting around the table uh, because they don't know. We as collectively, as people of color, we just got to get in those rooms. We just got to talk to people. We just got to be able to have these kind of difficult discussions, both among ourselves as people of color and with the white people we go to school with, that we go to work with um, um, and, and that we hang around with. We've got to be able to engage. And I know that that's uh, coming from a black guy. It's like, you know, we've been doing this for generations now, um, but we've got to continue to be open to engaging and having those conversations. So that way, when they go back to their Thanksgiving dinner table, when they go back to their coffee shops, when they're in the room with the, the racist jokes that we will never hear because the white people won't say it in front of us, but they'll say it in front of them, then hopefully in that room, they could be the catalyst for the change. Um, and it's unfortunate that that has to happen, but that it has to happen. Black people, we have to show up. We've got to be at the table um, and we've got to be in the voting booth. And I think, Go for it, Brittany. Brittany, you're Brittany muted. Brittany, muted. No, still muted. Uh, it's because I was clicking on the wrong window. Great. Um, to kind of comment on the fact that Black people need to step up and vote, I agree with that. But I don't agree with the fact that it should be on us to run for office because building off what was said before, it is incredibly difficult to run for political office. Um, it lacks lots of funds. Um, there's so many connections that are needed to run for political office. Not, am I saying it's impossible? No, um, but it's a little bit more complicated than just saying we need to be in the rooms. Um, to answer the original question of what do I want to see from my political party to um, make actual changes for black people, is that there are so many voices out here that are experts in their field, experts in prison reform, experts in defunding the police, ex experts in helping black people. And if white democratic leadership really wants to make a change, they can ask those people in the room. If they really want to uh, make an impact with black people and not just wear a Black Lives Matter pin, they can ask people that are experts and who've been working for years to change their communities for help and how to make actual changes in our society. I think piggybacking off of that point, and this might be more radical view of me, but multiple times on this specific podcast to the white folk who might be listening, survival has been brought up. For black voters, for this community, politics is a mean of, means of survival. Our rights weren't ingrained in the Constitution when it was first created. Our rights weren't ingrained when the Emancipation Proclamation was um, formed. It wasn't ingrained when the, it got amended. 
I don't very much Lawrence's point. I don't think there'll ever be a point where you can actually draw a definitive line between pandering and actual substantial change. But for the white folk who are in the room, for the white folk who are engaging, who are mobilizing, who are doing all of the things that are necessary, there needs to be an understanding or um, an ability to see what it means to be in a survival mode versus a, I want to do this. I want to be in service to mode because of that that's how you end up in a realm of pandering where you're going to put on some type of cloth because you think it gives off the image because you're, you're doing a service, you're having a moment of silence and we want to go that one extra step just so they know that we care. That doesn't matter when at the end of the day, there are still people marching and walking outside because another black man got shot and no one's taking the extra courage and putting their political career um, in a survival mode by saying, here are all the things that we need to do and we need to stop pretending like this is okay. So I, if to the original question, if we are to draw a line in the sand, there needs to be some mutual understanding and some mutual components there. There needs to be that political survival that comes up because the uh, conservative on one side of the aisle feels the courage to say, Black Lives Matters in this moment and know that his party very well could turn on him or her, uh, but knows that at the end of the day, it's not about pandering, it's about doing what's right and making sure that people move forward. Yeah, and I was just kind of um, like to jump off what everyone has said. I think it's important when we're thinking about and talking about Black voters that we talk about the most disenfranchised, right? Like. We're a group of who I would assume all have some sort of college education or are working on our college education just based on looks. It's an assumption, but um, this seems like an educated group. And so we already have a lot of privilege and even as black people. And so um, just thinking about our poor black communities, our working class black communities who um, don't have access to the information that we have about voting and like how to vote or have the time to vote um, and engage in politics. Like politics was never brought up in my household. I don't think my parents ever voted. Um, and so to what degree are people engaging our disenfranchised community and um, bringing them to the table to talk to them? And um, I think that's when we'll get away from pandering because serving our our middle class black folks is not serving our black community and so to me you'll still be pandering if you're not including our disenfranchised poor black people our black youth our black boys and girls our trans black youth and if i could just add briefly i i feel like the line between pandering and like in you know actually being for us is very simple because to me it's the difference between like words and action like if you talk about it on the campaign trail, but you don't back it up in office, like you were pandering because you really were not about that life. You were not about that work. If you're trying to do more than pander to us, then do the things that you're saying you're going to do, that you're the things that you're promising in order to get our votes. Um, as far as something more that I would like to see um, from, from like Democrats, liberals, as far as trying to actually get changes made that benefit the black community, I think they could do more like I think they people white people white liberal people in power could do more to actually give us not only inclusion but equity because inclusion is when we're in it on their terms and equity is when we're in it on our terms and so it's like they will bring us to the table but we only have a particular role to play we only have a particular 
perspective to contribute and then they go with their all their power and make the decisions and they may or may not be the decisions that actually benefit us but what is equity equity in a house is when you actually have cash value that you own right um and it's like what is the power that you are actually giving to us not to like sample and like to make us feel like we had a voice but where we actually have influence, we actually have influential roles to play, we actually have decision-making power, we actually have a voice that is actually taken into account with action. Um, I think that they're just, that a lot of dem de liberals, Democrats are very satisfied to just um, tokenize and, 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 and make themselves feel like they heard us because maybe they had a listening session or maybe they brought in a diversity consultant or maybe they you know did this, that, or the third, but it's like, are my people actually at the table in a critical mass? And when we're at the table, are the things that we're saying being put into action? Because if not, you're more than likely pandering and you're more than likely lying to yourselves and the rest of us as well. Right. Uh, I think Dexter had something he wanted to say, and then I want to switch over to the Republican side of this conversation. Yes. So first, I wanted to affirm and concede to Brianna's point, that uh, Brittany's point. Uh, that the vote is not easy to obtain and it's not easy uh, to create a candidacy. I think that that's a very important point to make, especially in states like Oklahoma, especially in states like Texas. Uh, it's nearly impossible. But I think that we're having a conversation about two realities. One I call the optional conversation and the other is the power conversation. And I think that we have to understand that if we don't organize people and organize money with large planning in play, we will never have the potency of voice. And I usually use the Jewish community as a model uh, because they're one of the races in this country that we can look at and say, you know, they've had similar plights, uh, you know, where people either wanted to destroy them, et cetera. Um, and so organizing our economic base and having our financial standing and ownership and position really puts us in a point where we may not be the candidate, but at least we have a voice with the candidate. And I think that we need more movements where all across the country we're gathering finances and then also our numbers. I mean, at this point now, Hispanics outnumber African-Americans in this country. And I believe, uh, Christina, to your point, you know, abortion definitely has a point to play in that. We can't afford to lose any more African-Americans in this country. We need to be having more children and actually raising them and building an economic uh, construct as well as an academic construct where we have place in our communities that's respected so that we can command more of the voting uh, space. Because I don't care what you say, to be white in this country, you begin to think differently and you don't understand what it is to be black. It helps if you have some black kids and some black grandkids and all of that. I have white people in my family. I love them dearly, but they still don't know what it's like to wake up and be me. And so we always will have this uh, problematic lens that we look through. And I think if we don't begin to recognize that and then really build black power in our communities, we'll never have the economic base, the academic base or the numbers base to be relevant enough uh, because it is a business game. At the end of the day, people want to understand how is it going to impact the bottom line. All right. Uh, thank you all for that. For for the Republican part of this, um, in 2013, after the 2012 election, the RNC did an autopsy report where they basically dissected what went wrong in the 2012 election. And so one of the points on that was that they needed to 
uh, further their outreach into the African-American, Latino, Asian, women, and uh, gay communities. Um, and what they felt was, and I'm going to be quoting Rinks previous, who was summarizing the report, he said, uh, to be clear, our principles are sound. Our principles are not old, rusty thoughts in some book. Uh, but the report notes the way we communicate our principles isn't resonating widely enough. Uh, we need a campaign among Hispanic, Black, Asian, and gay Americans and demonstrate we care about them too. We must recruit more candidates who come from minority communities, but it's not just tone that counts. Policy always matters. Now, after 2013 or after 2012, uh, Trump won 8% of the Black vote in 2016. Um, and contextual or putting that up against Mitt Romney and John McCain. Mitt Romney won 6% of the black vote and uh, John McCain won 4% of the black vote. Contextually, Romney and McCain ran up against the first black president or who would be the first black president um, for the 2008 election. So uh, for Christina and also Dexter, since you were traditionally conservative, uh, how and Christina, you touched on this in your answer before, how are the RNC, especially given things going on right now, going to actively campaign in the Black community and say that we care about you, we hear you, and so on? So do you want to know how they're do what they're doing now, how they are doing it? I, or is it like, how can they... So your question more like how can they in light of what people see and what they believe? Both. Okay. <laughs> so I would say how they are, we'll start with that, is they are talking about policies, you know, over personality. Um, so a lot of the things that Black Republicans talk about when they are talking to other Black people, they talk about job creation. Um, actually, abortion is really not one of the things that gets talked about a heck of a lot. Um, it's really kind of on the lower end. Usually it's jobs in the economy. And um, sometimes that has to do with immigration and, you know, putting the needs of Black Americans first and fighting for them to have jobs. They talk about things that President Trump has done, like giving, you know, funding to HBCUs so they didn't have to come back year after year. They talk about that. Uh, President Trump just released a platinum plan where he talked about wanting to, you know, um, create capital, you know, 500 billion uh, opportunity zones, creating opportunities and jobs for people in low income communities. They talk about um, religious liberty, although that is something that's like more popular in the white evangelical circles. But still, there are a lot of black people who care about, you know, religious liberty, too. So depending on what part of the country you're in. That's something else that they talk about. Criminal justice reform is another you know, topic. You see people like Angela Stanton, who was uh, pardoned by the president, Alice Johnson, who was uh, had an early release through the First Step Act, as well as then later on being pardoned by President Trump. And there's thousands of other people who have also been released, had early release uh, through prison through the First Step Act. President Trump as well. He uh, ban the shackling of pregnant women in prison. So they talk about these things. They talk about, uh, I guess, an opportunity zones, HBCU funding, uh, school choice is another one that resonates with people. And they mentioned that. Also military support. Um, my husband is 
a black man and he was in the military and that's something that's important to him. And there's a lot of other African-American people who the military, I, I wouldn't say it's as important as the white community because he was uh, very much a minority of minorities when he was in the Coast Guard Academy, but still it is something that is important to some people. So those are some of the things that they lead with and have conversations about. And how can they get through to people in light of, you know, people's beliefs that the president is a racist or their beliefs that all Republicans are racist? <laughs> I'm just laughing because I just thought of scripture, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But that scripture is basically kind of saying in a sense, you know, I'm going to put this out here and whoever is able to hear or wants to hear, they're going to hear it. You know, I'm going to sow this seed. And for some people, the seed's going to fall on hard ground. And for some people, the seed's going to fall on soft ground. So there's just a reality that, yes, if I give my message to people, it's I'm guaranteed that, you know, maybe seven out of 10 people or eight out of 10 people off, off the bat, they're not going to want to hear it. There's too much that they already think in their mind. I can't break down those walls. Um, there's no trust. And I don't have the time or the um, the ability to be able to break down those barriers. And so therefore I can't get my message across. But then there's always going to be, or there often is one, you know, or two people out of 10, out of a group who say, okay, you know, I hear you on, you know, criminal justice reform, or I hear you on you know school choice or you know religious liberty does matter to me and then you work with those people so you know personally you know my goal as a conservative as a black republican is not just to go out and evangelize the world to become black republicans and conservatives i talk about what i see and so for example with me in connecticut i'm in a very liberal state and let's just take se section eight for example so the progressives and the liberals here in Connecticut, they're like, here you go, you have, you know, social services, you have Section 8. But in Connecticut, you, there is no um, incentive to get off of Section 8. So you don't, you can stay on there forever, as long as you stay poor, you can stay on these services forever. And if you do that, you will always live in a certain area. So while progressives and liberals are providing these services, they know that for some people it cripples them and they're never going to, to be able to get off. And they're always gonna live in Hartford or New Britain or these areas that are high crime. And Connecticut is one of the most liberal states, but it's also one of the most segregated states in the entire country. We are so segregated. It's insane. You go from one area to the next and it's just wealthy white people. And then you go, we turn the corner and it looks like a third world country. And a lot of people just don't care. So it's like, yes, I can give black people all these resources, but just stay over there in your area, in your town, in your city. And as long as you're not here in my city, in my town, you know, I don't care where my taxpayer dollar goes, as long as you're not moving into my community. That's what I've seen. Or even with the pregnancy center movement, the progressives and liberals here, they're trying to shut down pro-life pregnancy centers because they're anti-abortion and they're, they're faith-based. But they don't really care if the women that are going there who are getting resources, if those places get shut down, if they don't have an alternative, because they can't go to Planned Parenthood for diapers, they can't go to Planned Parenthood 
for you know parenting classes. They can't go to Planned Parenthood for for material resources, but they don't care as long as they shut down the place that is offensive to them because it's anti-abortion. So when I'm having conversations, I'm bringing up these things that I see that are inconsistent, and I'm saying, you know, I will say that the, the people that I know that are, you know, because I, I work for a group called the Family Institute of Connecticut, and so I work right near the Capitol. I'm three minutes away from the Capitol. Now it's, you know, coronavirus quarantine time, so I haven't been able to be there, and really nobody's there. But throughout the year, you know, when, when we're not in a, you know, uh, pandemic, I am talking to state senators and talking to legislators and having conversations. And I see a lot of um, lip service, but again, they drive into Hartford. That is where they work. That is our capital city and all around them. It's just completely devastated. And they've been in power for so many years and it's just status quo over and over and over again. And people are just dying. So I think that the black Republicans that are successful have to be willing to listen, have to be willing to be a bridge builder and have to be okay with, um, like the Bible says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. So you have to be okay with small beginnings. One quick thing for the listeners on this podcast, to that point about segregation and um, spaces in Connecticut and all that, that's red lighting that happens throughout this country. And it is a historical problem that impacts every state that we're in. It's not being transparent while it might've been politically driven. It is not a singular political issue for one party to address or to handle. Um, And it is a problem that has hindered black growth for decades. The one time that there was an opportunity for African-Americans to rise up and have a space and grow, the white majority of that land in Oklahoma torched it. So I just, one quick little piece to be mindful of. Um, Second, to the point of being a prominent um, African-American conservative, I agree. And I think it leans back to that question, the original question that we were on of pandering. Um, I think of Tim Scott, Tim Scott, Tom Scott, Tim Scott. Um, And I think to the fact that he had to march out on the national stage and condemn his party's leader for propping up white supremacy at a debate. And he, one, was called out for being courageous, which shouldn't be that hard, but two, had to write such a narrowly worded motto or um, speech that gave the president covered and said he misspoke, but he needs to come out immediately because that is where the black conservative is. If we're going to talk about tokenism, no disrespect to you, Christina, obviously, but the white or the black conservative is a token. They go out and they say what the party needs so that the rest of the blacks can hop on and say, all right, well, he supports it. You look at what just happened to Lindsey Graham and his debate against Harrison that that is a great example of how two African Americans from one state from two different parties can say two can want to say the same thing, but have to say two broadly different things because the party's going to go against them. So to that point on pandering, to that point on survival, um, I think the black conservative very much recognizes, and more so than the black Democrat, 
they're always in survival because they make one miscue and they're out. And that is a, a key issue and problem um, for pandering and all the alike. I just want to say to the point, um, I, I think that this is the only example that I can give that might make some sense. You know, my husband is, like I mentioned, he was a military guy and he, he went to the Coast Guard Academy and he still works on the alumni board. And he's actually doing a lot of work with um, racism and anti-racist stuff and um, working with other black veterans. And it's really difficult work because it's a majority white organization. But there is this balance, absolutely, that when you are at the table, in a sense, of an organization, you're at the table and you do see all sorts of stuff and you see what's right and you see what's wrong, you are always in the tension of wanting, if you have a, the right heart, I think, you're in the tension of wanting to correct certain things, but you do have to be mindful of your position. So just for example, for me, you know, I am on the pro-life coalition for the president. And so when you sign up to do something or when you're a part of an organization, you do have a certain, you're signing up to be honorable. You know, that's just the reality. And you, I mean, you don't have to, you could leave and do a tell-all book like some people do. But if you are committed to being at a specific table, then there's always going to be the tension. I, I guess I'm talking about Tim Scott and the way that he operates. So with his responsibility and his role, he has to be, he chooses to be, he doesn't have to be. He chooses to be guarded in what he says, and he chooses to express himself in a certain way to balance out being inside and then, you know, wanting to make change on the inside and then also wanting to let people know on the outside that he cares. Now, for some people, that's unacceptable. That's completely unacceptable. He's a sellout. He's a token. Someone like me, I'm a sellout. I'm a token. Well, that's fine. But the problem with that, if people think that way about you, the problem with that is you're only going to have a certain type of black person that's allowed to be on the inside. So if you, if anyone like Tim Scott, if he's not accepted, then you're, and I don't want to name other black people, but you're only going to have a certain type of black person. And maybe that black person does not care at all. Like they just do not care. And either way, they'll both be called a token. So I can be very different than a popular black conservative speaker. I can be very different. But if everybody looks at us exactly the same, then I'm never going to even get on the inside because that person's going to be there and that person may not even care. So I'm, I, I can't really without, <laughs> I hope that makes sense. That's it's a great point. It's a great <laughs> uh, Chris, do you want me to respond now or wait? Yeah, go ahead. So I've been working with Tim Scott's office the last couple of years on this opportunity zone business. And I think there's a few things in terms of what Republicans are trying to offer and the way that it's being offered. I agree with Christina that if we demonize all black Republicans as uh, you know, sellouts, you know, we're never gonna get anywhere. It's the same argument that's 150 years old. You can go back to Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois and the way that they were very opposed in their ideologies 
I think that we do need both spaces, having conversations on a regular basis. And I think the way that we do that is to understand that before we are anything in a white America, we are black. And if we understand that, and we understand that we need to work together uh, and that we are needed in every room, in every season of politics, we can make some headway. That being said, these opportunity zones are so out of reach for the majority of black Americans and black business owners. I got a 10 year tax incentive. Like what's that gonna do for the majority of black people? They need money now. And so if we could have the reparations conversation, you know, and start to get the payouts, I think then opportunity zones would make sense because you would have some money to throw at the fight. But I think that um, a lot of times Republican narrative is so out of touch with where black people live, it's very ineffective. And then you have uh, this whole lack of racial sensitivity, diversity sensitivity, that ban that he just placed on diversity initiatives from the White House and all federal funds, that is, in, we're about to do a, a, a event on that in a couple of weeks with three diversity professionals. I mean, that is absolutely crazy. Uh, so you could be marketing one thing and then doing things. That's the thing that black people are, are really upset with, I think, at large, is that Republicans tend to play us as fools, as though we don't understand what's going on and we're going to hop on a few things. And obviously, Christina, I don't think you're a fool. Um, <clears throat> and I think the work that you're doing is extremely valuable. Um, I think that we need to continue to push back at the expected ignorance in the black community and the ignorance in the white community that would afford them the privilege to just say whatever the hell they desire to say and think that we're gonna be okay with it. That is master mentality. And that's the thing that I'm adamantly opposed against. You do not get to treat us any kind of way and we will not be complicit because of loyalty to party. That to me is sellout. That to me is evil. And that cannot continue to happen. And we have Christians, you know, Christian leaders that endorse President Trump and refuse to uh, call out any kind of error, whether it's Trump, whether it's McConnell, any, any Republican leader because of allegiance to party. And I think that that is the thing that makes the church so, and this is not about the church, but um, it does make the church look extremely weak. It makes it look extremely compromised. And I come out of those spaces where, you know, I've worked with those individuals and they will not speak on anything that deals with real black issues. They won't touch reparations. They won't touch um, the systemic uh, problems in terms of our healthcare disparities and all of that. But they'll deal with the issues that they know that are token conservative issues that will hold people in their muzzle, their mouths. And that is the thing that I think that we just have to do, do something about. I said it in the chat, but I wanna say it in verbally. <laughs> I think that when we talk about the church, we should talk about, we should be specific about which church we're talking about. What you were just saying to me just to describes the white evangelical church and they are not the totality of the church. And I think there are a lot of black Christians, a lot of black churches that do speak up about injustice and that do nip it in the bud. And I just want to name that. You're so right, Brianna. And I think too, you have all of these different emergent churches that have formed where they have no political identity. You have churches that are funded by white money, but they look black. You have churches that are black with conservative money. You got all kinds of stuff going on out here today now. And faith is driving politics at a level that it hasn't, I don't think in a very long time. Um, and I don't name names and all of that, but I've seen enough to last me a lifetime. And I think that it's pulling a lot of people that still deem ethic, 
as like a high regard, you know, just for the human ethic and wanting to see equality and these different things is pulling people out of these spaces. I can't count the number of whites and blacks that have called me over the last year and a half, two years that have left their churches, that have left uh, their denominations that have given over their papers. I mean, I had a pastor of mine in the last few weeks that basically lambasted me in front of his whole con- uh, congregation. And um, I'm at a point where I may be, you know, submitting license back to them. You know, I mean, we're using politics and faith in a way that the Jesus that I study and the Jesus that I preach would never have done. That is pharisaical. That is sadducical. That is uh, totally incongruent with biblical theology. So I just want to affirm that. For now. I uh, had something. Sorry, Chris. Mind if I go? Yeah, I know, Chris, you wanted to say something. And then after that, we're going to move on because uh, we need to talk about the candidates. So, okay, yeah, yeah. So really quick. Um, so, you know, we when the conversation comes around, you know, black conservatives and people want to use the term sellout and things like that, for me, and this is me personally, it's never been like, oh my God, someone's black and conservative. Like, okay, a black person is, you know, they're pro-life and they want lower taxes. That 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 to me is not what I see as someone who is selling out. When I see someone who's quote unquote selling out is when that they are, is when a black person is used to push an anti-black agenda. So a good example is like, you're on Fox News, you know, Fox News will hire black people to talk shit about the black community. They'll hire black people that'll go and be like, oh my God, Black Lives Matter is so dangerous. And they want to burn all these cities down and start, you know, the Marxist revolution. Right. So that is what I see as selling out. And it's not just with black people. I mean, I've seen like at once there was like a Muslim guy who's on there and he's like, oh, yeah, Islam's the most dangerous religion out of all of them. You know, they'll have Latinx people who are like abortion. I mean, not sorry, not abortion. Freudian slip. Immigration's terrible and we should never, you know, we should just close all our borders forever. So when the conversation comes around selling out, for me, it's always been. Someone who is black who is pushing an anti-black agenda. That makes sense. All right. Yes. Candace Owens, Jason Whitlock, Diamond and Silk. Moving on. Uh, so we have uh, two candidates for president. Uh, well, we have more than two, but third party votes are not viable in this in this time. So we have the Democratic Party nominee, former Vice President Joe Biden and uh, current incumbent president incumbent president, the Republican nominee, President Donald Trump. Um, so both have had a very perilous history with race and black people in America going back decades. Um, so right now we're going to go start in the present and go back to the past. Um, we're going to start with Joe Biden. In uh, Earlier this year, he was on Charlemagne the God's Breakfast Club. And they were uh, going back and forth. They were jabbing at each other. And uh, Charlemagne the God asked Biden how he felt about uh, Black people that were on the fence about voting for him. And uh, to quote him accurately, uh, Biden said, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're uh, for me or, or Trump, then you ain't Black. For Actually, I want I want Christina to respond first, and then I'll leave it to the uh, whoever wants to take it on, on the left. So, Christina, how do you feel about that? Since you have vocally stated you are going to support Trump this year, honestly, I 
I, I don't have the typical conservative response to it. I, I really wasn't that offended. I thought, um, well, <laughs> honestly, my first thought was like, oh, he's gotten real comfortable around uh, black people. You know, <laughs> like sometimes you you get real comfortable. And so you just think like, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm so comfortable. I'm one of you. I can just say whatever I want. I was like, he, you know, he was around Obama for a long time. And so he just got comfortable. That was my first thought. And then my other thought was, I, um, I, I, I don't say this in any way to be demeaning, but I, I kind of thought maybe it was like a slip or what do they say, a gaffe or something. I, I, um, I don't think he was fully aware of what he was saying. Um, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't offended by it, but I will say that I did kind of make a joke when it happened and then people got mad at me for not being more offended about it and so i just you know i stopped talking about it but i don't know i give by we'll get into it i'm sure but biden and trump i i give people a lot of grace so i i probably give them both a lot of grace with things that they say so i can't stay offended every day of my life so i just have to just let things go uh, so the chat wants you to tell the joke. No, I don't even, I don't even remember what it was. Oh. I don't even remember. I just said something on Facebook and people were like, but don't you know he said this? And don't you know he said that? And I was like, okay, so obviously people are really mad. And, um, and P you know, I think that because we're so divided, Trump says something, Biden says something, and then either side wants to use it. And they want to use it for a long time to use it to um, to show the other side how horrible their person is, you know? So that was one of those things where it's like, okay, look what Biden said. Like, you know, we're going to take this for all that we can and we're going to run with it. And um, I didn't really want to run with it, so... You know, certain people got mad at me, but I mean, it was like it was a white person. One of the one of the people that got mad at me. It wasn't black people, black conservatives or Republicans that were mad. But if I if I remember the joke, I would tell you guys. But I don't know. Uh, but before we slide to the left on this one, uh, I, I think we can all agree as black people that we are tired of being told by white people of how we should respond to racism and racist statements. That is a problem in every political ideology. So that just needs to stop. Everybody's snapping for those of you listening. You guys can't see. I know. I was just thinking this is awkward. We're all <laughs> muted and we're like, we're having church in our living rooms and nobody can hear. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so sliding to the left, whoever wants to take that. One thing I want to say is that um, white politicians are no longer allowed to go on the breakfast club anymore because <laughs> anytime one of them goes in their breakfast club, they always get in trouble. I remember back in 2016, Hillary Clinton with the hot sauce in my bag, people got mad at her for that. I think Elizabeth Warren, Charlemagne asked her, he's like, well, didn't you pretend to be Native American? And she didn't know how to respond. I think... When Bernie was on there, he's like, hey, Bernie, you for reparations? And Bernie's like, nah. So, like, anytime a white politician goes in a breakfast club, it's just, they always misstep and say something that's just used against them. So I'm just like, find another show. I don't know where they need to go, but just stay away from the breakfast club because it's just never worked in their favor. 
anybody else? I know Christina was saying like that, you know, it wasn't something she, she wanted to get hung up or offended on. I honestly didn't lose sleep over the comment, but it was stupid though. Like it was just a stupid thing to say, like you don't even have a black card to give out or take. Only black people can do that. It's similar to saying the N word, like you're just not even in the club. It's like, how are you gonna hate from outside the club? You can't even get in. So how are you telling people who can come in and out of the club? Like you're not in the club. You're not even close to the club. Like we just associating with you to try to get this fascist out of office. Like that's pretty much all this is. And being Obama's vice president didn't make you, didn't get you an invitation to the cookout. You might've been at his cookout, but that don't mean you are at our cookout. <laughs> so I just felt like he overstepped and he took too many liberties by saying that. But I did, I was just like, Biden, but Biden has been saying crazy stuff on this whole campaign trail. Like Biden doesn't have a good guard over his mouth in general so it almost like it's almost like it wasn't surprising because he's been on the campaign trail calling telling people that stuff they're saying is horse shit and like it's like he hasn't been controlling his mouth and his temper and it has made people really question whether he's like going senile and that's really not a good look for this whole campaign um which is just unfortunate because he's he's our option um besides trump so it's just it's just another stupid thing that he said, in my opinion, and it's just like, but to the, but to the thing, internally we have been having that conversation, right? Internally we have been having the conversation as like, don't don't we need to vote for him in order for like in order to get Trump out for the best interests of our community? And we have been having that infighting. Like some people are like, I had one friend post a status that was provocative to me because he was like, no party has my allegiance, my community has that. And he was kind of challenging people who were going hard on the vote, vote, vote thing. And so it's like black people definitely have different politics. And some people are saying if you're not willing to vote, then you're you know, not doing right by our community. But that's a conversation for us to have. Like that's the A and B conversation. He needs to see his way out. I agree, Brianna. I think, too, I think sometimes we forget that Joe Biden literally has like a medically declared speech impediment. And even though he's overcome that. I think that a lot of people forget, like, this is a big challenge for him. So when he's in a debate or he's in kind of any kind of space like that, he's old, he has a speech impediment, and he's old. <laughs> and so, you know, these are actual situations. Um, I think that a lot of whites, too, make ignorant comments out of their subconscious because it's a part of the narrative, the, the, the American white narrative. James Weldon Johnson writes this more brilliantly than anybody in the autobiography of an ex-slave when he talks about blacks in their positions of servitude, observing the white uh, family and just the white construct and how that goes on. And he was saying like, they don't even know who they are really. You know, blacks are a lot more in touch because of what we've been through. So I think for us to judge that I think we just got to look at all sides of it. I don't think that he should have said it. I don't think that he should feel that way. Um, and I don't think that he's racist. I think that that was just an ignorant slip. And I think, too, it's just sad that the presidential candidates for America are so – we don't have the best to choose from right now. It just is what it is. And not to – no pun intended on it is what it is, but that's how I, I kind of feel about that. Well, speaking of it is what it is. Um, so uh, during the last debate, as well as several times in the past four years, 
Uh, president Trump has touted that he has done more for black Americans than any president. At first he said, except Lincoln. Now he says maybe even Lincoln. And one of the things he touts is the black unemployment rate and the black unemployment rate has been on a steady decline since March 2010, when it was at a peak of 19.3. Um, when President Obama left office, it was at 7.2%. And before COVID hit, um, it was at about 5.8%. And the lowest it came was 5.1 in October of 2019. So the one, how do you feel about Trump, President Trump saying that he's done more for Black Americans? And then do you feel that the unemployment rate is a accurate benchmark to say, look at what I've done for you? I'm going to keep this one short. I, it's a lie. He hasn't done that much. Just going to throw that one out there. Um, second, no, I don't think that the unemployment rate is an accurate benchmark. I also would like to touch on your context, Chris, of the black unemployment rate had been on a steady decline through the Obama administration into his administration. What you did notice was after the tax law was implemented and the full effects of that tax law came in, you started to see some more fluctuation in the African-American unemployment rate purely because uh, those tax credits weren't permanent. They were temporary. They gave a little bit more spending power, but at the same time, that job that you were working that was covering your bills still was only covering your bills. It wasn't giving you all of the extra um, spending and mobility that you would hope. So um, I, I just, yeah, short and sweet, it's a lie. It's just a, a blatant lie. And to Dexter's point uh, from the pandering conversation, um, you can have an intent or an opportunity or some weird attachment to an idea just because it happened while you were in a close proximity to it. But if your your motivation and your reason moving forward isn't to actually do good, then do you really get to take credit for it? And I think you can look at more parts of his record to say, is this really worth or does has he really done anything versus a number that is tethered to multiple administrations and multiple actions that he didn't even know were happening. If I can just jump in here for uh, the, the first one, just to touch on a little bit what, what Dexter was saying. Um, January 21, 2021, um, either Donald Trump or Joe Biden will be the president of the United States. Um, now you more than welcome to vote for whoever you want to vote for. Uh, you're more than welcome to pray about it and fast about it. Um, but at the end of the day, on that day, either one of them will be the president of the United States. And unfortunately, um, you know, again, choose some of what you want compared to all of what you don't. I think that's that's for, for me, um, at least what, what's happening here. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't support Joe Biden in the primary, uh, but he is the nominee and he gives me some of what I want and Trump gives me all of what I don't. Um, and that leads to the second point, when Trump says that he's done more for black people than anything else. I was literally, literally just talking uh, to my friend Ronson about this, who was asking you know, these same sorts of questions and about the opportunity zones and, and things of that sort. Uh, and don't get me wrong, all that's great. You know, all, all this economic news is, is great, uh, but a good economy didn't stop Tamir Rice from getting shot on the playground. 
a good economy. Didn't stop Philando Castillo from getting shot uh, while driving the car. So I, I'm all in favor of a good economy. Um, I am definitely one of those. I, I love my good old capitalism. Rah, rah. Anyways, how does that protect black people um, who have to walk through neighborhoods to get to work, white neighborhoods to get to work? Right. I've got to drive through a white neighborhood in order to get to work. So how do I feel safe with that or to just walk at the park? Uh, you know, can black people just barbecue at the park again um, without getting the police called on them? Um, how did a good economy help Breonna Taylor or or George Floyd? So I, I'm all for a good economy. That's great. But that's not all of it. And I think our our our, our white brothers and sisters and uh, and our white cousins, because we got some don't, don't want to be a part of the family. We don't really want them at our house. But, um, you know, they, they, they think and they, and they tie everything to the economy. Uh, and that's OK, because that's 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 their method of understanding. Right. They don't have to deal with the same systemic um, issues that we as people of color do. And so for them, when the economy gets good, life gets good for them. And that's understandable. Um, but that's not the case for black people. Right. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. You know, can you walk around Best Buy without getting followed or not? And, you know, could you drive through a white neighborhood um, and you ride past a police officer without your, your heart sinking into your stomach? You ever had that feeling? No, I haven't. Every time I drive past a police officer, I get nervous. I get scared. Um, and not because I've done something wrong, but because I'm black and I'm in a white neighborhood. Um, and so that that doesn't I, I got a good job. I'm, I make good money. I ain't bragging. I'm just saying I'm blessed by God. Um, and, and so I, I got everything that I need, but it doesn't help when I'm in my car. It doesn't help when I just want to walk to the park. It doesn't help when I go back home uh, to my neighborhood in inner city Detroit and there's people uh, we can't even get access to a recreation center. You want these people to go to college? to get some degree in some language that they never even heard of in order to do what? Feed who around the world? When we're trying to get access to recreation centers or clean water in Flint, come on now. It's just, it, it doesn't, a good economy is great and I love it. We should root for a good economy. Um, and and, and, I, and I thank God that Trump wasn't able to do as much damage to the economy as he, as he would have done. But that's not even the point. Um, it's making sure that we are able to live in a just society um, and basically Black Lives Matter. That, I'm going to end it right there. Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And until a good economy start making Black Lives Matter, then this ain't going to work. Okay. Uh, before anyone um, responds to any more about the economics, I want to uh, give you all the opportunity to respond to when Christina was talking earlier, she was talking about the criminal justice reforms that have happened under President Trump with the um, the various, the First Step Act and the um, other initiatives that he has done. Um, what is your response to, because although he doesn't really flaunt that, um, I think uh, his uh, press secretary uses that and some of his other uh, supporters, I know he doesn't really, because he really hangs his hat on the economy. Uh, what What is your response to that? Mostly, um, it's in a uh, President Obama didn't do that, so yeah. So this is like my area of focus. I have a lot of feelings. Um, I work at the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and we're like we do like advocacy for criminal justice reform. Um, Congress did that. You, all, we know how the three branches of government works. Congress writes the laws. 
the president just signs them. And then the president wants to take credit because he signed it. He didn't write the bill. He didn't develop the bill. He didn't push for the bill to happen. People in Congress who have already been talking about the need for criminal justice reform long before he came into office put their differences aside and came to get to try to give some incremental change to criminal justice issues. And he signed it. And it didn't do that much because only a small percentage of people are in federal prisons to begin with. And there's a lot of exclusion lists. In order to get that act passed, they excluded so many offenses because they were violent or what have you. But it's like everybody in jail needs to have an opportunity to rehabilitate and like move towards a better path. And so why is it that you're excluding people from these opportunities? But yet Trump didn't do that. And he's just taking credit for it because he signed it. But like signing your name on a piece of paper doesn't mean you you wrote, you took the test. Thank you. I just want to, I, I can't even add anything else to that. Just this is one of the most disengaged administrations when it comes to legislative action, where there used to be conversations in the Oval Office where you could tell, I met with the majority leaders and I got to have those conversations and I had a part. This administration has 100% delegated that role completely to Congress. He had no aspect, he had no aspect, no feeling, nothing about it, except for when they came walking to his desk and said what it did, he said it'd be a great opportunity to sign in and get some really great pictures and hand out a bunch of pins to a bunch of different people. Yes. And this is a talking points president, no shade. Okay, maybe a little shade, but this is a talking points president. He's not a very well-read human being. Um, I doubt he would even fully understand a bill if he read it. And what it is, what is it rather, to hand someone, hand someone a spoon and then snatch the spoon back and say, figure out a way to, uh, to eat that. When you pass a bill and then you turn around and take away funding that would empower people to have the understanding on how to exercise that bill appropriately. I mean, this, this diversity slam, a lot of people are not even paying it any attention, but if it does have any federal funding implications, that would be billions of dollars and thousands of jobs of people that are working in the community to make sure that prison reform is happening, to make sure that people are gaining the cultural competencies to understand why it is the way that it is and to do this kind of rehabilitation. So I don't think we get any passes on things like this. Chris, you're muted. You're muted, Chris. Chris, you're muted. All right, you have just listened to part two of the Black Vote podcast. Now stay tuned for part three.